moment to extend my uh, welcome to you. It's uh, uh, incredibly special to see some of you here today and all of you, but there's some uh, guests that we have here today and we want to say uh, we bless the Lord for you being here. I uh, hope you've already been blessed. Um, as we begin to think uh, about our text today and what we have already shared uh, and what we will share, I wanted to read this uh, short piece from you uh, from this uh, copy of Prison Meditations, Cries of Truth from Behind the Iron Curtain. Um, it certainly is in keeping with what we have been thinking through as we have been giving consideration to our uh, to the suffering and persecution and our response to that, not in just in the lives of others, but most especially uh, as we live in the days that we live in and we prepare and equip ourselves for those things which are to come. Uh, suppose you were living 2,000 years ago in Palestine, that you were sinful, uh, heavy with guilt, and Jesus told you, that your sin is grave and deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death. But then he says this, But tomorrow I will be flogged and crowned with a crown of thorns for you. I invite you to assist them when they drive nails into my hands and feet and fix me to a cross. I'll cry in anguish. I will share in the sorrow of my mother whose heart will be pierced by compassion for me as if by a sword. You should be there to hear my cries. And when I have died, you shall know that your sins are forgiven forever, that I was your substitute, your scapegoat. This is how a man gets saved. Will you accept my suffering for your offense or do you prefer to bear the punishment yourself? And the question is, is what would you have answered? Uh, that same question is before us today. Uh, what will we answer? Uh, this thing of uh, salvation that we have been speaking of already today, uh, the suffering of Christ, uh, his uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, his work on our behalf, uh, his grace toward us, um, those are very real things. Those are not just something that uh, we speak about here in a setting as we are today in a church service, uh, but they are in fact, and it is in fact, uh, the very grounding of the hope that any of us will ever have uh, for eternal life. I invite you to take your copies of Scripture and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we will begin in verse 7. We'll read through verse 11. We're in our 13th week of working through 1 Peter. Um, for those who have been, you are reminded that Peter is writing to a group of people uh, who are believers, who are scattered over what we know of today as modern-day Turkey. Um, 
They were there, as we have mentioned almost every week. They are there because God has sovereignly placed them there. They are scattered by God's sovereignty. They are strangers in the world, meaning that they are different than the rest of the world. Their worldview is different. Their life is different. Their mindset is different. Uh, And in the course of that, they are running headlong into living in a different world uh, and a different worldview that is driven, uh, that is driving most of the rest of the world. And because of that and that conflict, uh, many of them are being persecuted. Uh, Their persecution will uh, intensify. Um, Ours, in fact, I believe, as believers, is now intensifying. Uh, And Peter is trying to help them to see God's sovereign purpose in their being placed there. They're being called out to salvation. Uh, Their struggles are under uh, the sovereign rule and reign of God. So when we're speaking of sovereignty, again, let me remind you, uh, we can talk about the sovereignty of God in life. We need to understand what we are talking about when we say that God is sovereign. That means that nothing comes to you in your life. No suffering, no hardship, no anguish, uh, no persecution. Nothing comes to you in the course of life apart from God's hand directing it to you for his glory uh, and for his purpose. And we have Uh, found that uh, even as we have looked at Peter, uh, we can look at the primary purpose of his uh, work in our lives. And if you will uh, look over again that in chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, there in verse 9, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that this is the life of the believer now, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that is, the, uh, that is the driving thrust of all that God is doing in the life of the believer. Uh, what does that mean for the life of the one who has not yet trusted Christ? Uh, that means that you are hearing the gospel and you should be hearing it. You should be seeing it lived out in some ways and in various ways by those who also proclaim that they know the excellencies of him. They have received the grace of God in Christ. They have trusted in him. And that is what Peter uh, is striving for. I want to point you again to the theme, I believe, of this letter. uh, And this will help set the context for where we go this morning. In chapter 4 and verse 19, we have not reached that place yet, but we have referred to it. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, that seems to be, at least as best I can tell, is the theme of this letter, that God in his providence brings about the suffering, the persecution, the hardship, and the struggle of the church Uh, for the purpose of proclaiming his glory, helping others see his glory, and he does so in the humble service and humble attitude of the believers who are falling under, going under, dealing with uh, this persecution and hardship. And as we've said before, uh, it uh, often, uh, probably most of all, falls 
upon us with uh, less of an understanding because we are not living in a day where persecution is heavy. Uh, we seldom consider persecution, which again was a part of our uh, pointing you to uh, making, uh, uh, making it available to you uh, the reading of 40 days of personal struggles and hardships of those uh, who are and have been facing the persecution uh, as they live in a world and in a culture uh, whose worldview is very much different, so much so uh, that that worldview prevails to the extent of even seeking to extinguish those who do not have that common worldview. Let's read our text together this morning. Verse 7, chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, our heart is, is to understand your word. Our heart is to know what you were communicating to those who received this the very first time. And then our heart is, Father, to see how that applies to us today. We know that your word is not a mystery. There's much that we don't know about you. But the word that you have given to us, we can know and should know. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us from your word this morning. Would you make it simple for us to understand Father, would you grant that your Holy Spirit direct it to our hearts and our minds? Would you cause us to hear it as your word? And then, Father, would you direct it to our hearts in such a way that it becomes immediately uh, and in the days of head and the days ahead uh, can be applied as we give consideration to how we bear witness and testimony? To you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, we left our text with an understanding that Peter uh, was writing to the people with this, this idea in mind. The idea that he had in mind, if you look back in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he said, arm yourselves. Uh, he is talking about arming ourselves. Arming ourselves because there is a battle. Arming ourselves because there is a fight. Arming ourselves because there is a conflict. Uh, that's the term that he uses. Uh, it is as if they were picking up arms to go to battle. But the battle is very different. Uh, there is a struggle. There is a hardship. There is a fight to be fought. Uh, Peter is directing them to that. 
but they are not picking up guns. They're not picking up swords. They're not picking up spears. They're not picking up grenades. They're not seeking to destroy what God is directing them to do. What God is directing us to do is that in the course of the days that we live in, where there is a definite and should be uh, a definite conflict between our values and the values of the world, between our worldview, when I say our, I'm speaking of those who have trusted Christ, between the worldview of the believer and the worldview uh, that is embraced by the rest of the world, that there is an actual battle, there's an actual struggle, and therefore we should arm ourselves. Now, as we worked through last week, we ended with this, and it's already been referred to, but I want to point us back to this. If you'll look there in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The point is, is that judgment was coming. And Peter, along the way, even in the course of giving this, um, uh, giving this picture to the church, to the believer, to those who were scattered, he is giving a picture to them that even though they are facing persecution, they live in light of the fact that they will meet God. In other words, judgment's coming. It's coming for every one of us. Now, we would think that he would continue with that in some other way, in some other way than what he has expressed. But the very next thing that he writes to these believers who are facing persecution, who are struggling, who are scattered by God's sovereign will, who have been called to live in this difficult time, many of whom whose lives were Uh, so to speak, hanging in the balance, the very next thing he tells them, he says in verse 7 of our text, the end of all things is at hand. Rest there for just a moment. The end of all things is at hand. What was he trying to say? Well, back up to Acts chapter 1 and I think most know that Peter was one of the apostles, one of the followers of Christ. Uh, We looked at his message, a part of his message today, even as uh, uh, Adam was sharing with us as we looked at our confession and uh, our assurance of pardon. Uh, But look in Acts chapter 1. Look in verse 6. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why do we point back there? Well, the last thing that Peter had heard from Christ and the last question that was posed to him was basically, when are you going to return? When is the end coming? When can we expect you? They had followed him to the cross, some of them. They had seen him resurrected. 
they knew that he was alive. They were there with him before he ascended to heaven. They actually were getting ready at the very point that we read there in Acts. They were getting ready to see him ascending into heaven. He was leaving them. He had promised them the Holy Spirit. Within a matter of just a few days, the Spirit of God would come upon them. And the things that uh, he intended for them to do, they were going to carry out. And they were going to begin to do, which primarily rested in proclaiming the excellencies of him uh, who had uh, who had led them out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, they were going to preach the gospel. Uh, they were going to stand before uh, kings. They were going to stand before rulers. They were going to stand before nations of people. They were going to begin to travel uh, the known world. They were going to share the gospel. They were going to see churches planted. All of those things that they would have thought these are impossible things for us. All of those things were going to take place in their life because the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and he was going to empower them, but they still lived with the present understanding that Christ has left and he has promised to come back. When will he come back? And Peter is writing to these believers who were scattered some 30 years later. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That's true today. The end of all things is at hand. What made it the end? Was Jesus, uh, was Jesus trying to encourage them in a way whenever he told them that he was going to return and receive them to himself? Did he really mean that? Yes, he meant that. But what did he mean by that? He meant that he was going to return again without any definite time given. This past week, our Connect group uh, met, and we were looking in Luke's gospel, and we looked at uh, one, of the, uh, one of the parables that Jesus taught. And it was a similar thing, but it was, it was important for us as we grappled with that text this past Thursday to give consideration uh, that the owner of this vineyard that he was entrusting to tenants, that he entrusted it to the tenants and he left. And it's, Luke recorded it this way. He said, and he, and, and he went away for a long time. In other words, they didn't know when he was going to return. His, he went away and he was away for a long time. And Christ has left and he has been away for a long time. But the end is still at hand, and that was what Peter was trying to help them to understand. He will return, but the end is at hand. In other words, the end of all things is at hand. Why was he able to say that? And it's important for us to understand that, to understand the rest of the text. It's important because everything in the way of the redemption of God had been accomplished. Jesus had died. He had paid the penalty for sin. He bore the wrath of God. He had, in fact, and was, in fact, the substitute. Everything up until Christ had pointed to him. The Old Testament saints, they lived in view of them standing before God in judgment. But the Old Testament saints understood and knew that the Messiah had not come. We often read in the Psalms, 
our call to worship will often come from the Psalms. And we understand that Old Testament saints are looking ahead, but they are looking ahead to the time that they stand before God, but they have not yet seen, they have not yet seen the fulfillment of what God has been promising them in the coming of the Messiah. All of that came to bear when Christ came. And when Peter was there at Caesarea Philippi and he looked at Christ, when Christ said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the sent one, the Christ, the son of the living God. And as we looked last week, Christ pointed to his own suffering and Peter said, no. And Christ said, yes, yes. Well, that suffering has taken place. Peter had witnessed that. In fact, he had been party to that. In fact, it was Peter's sin and his denial and our sin and our denial and our rejection of the Christ that was the cause of Christ's hands and feet being pierced. Don't disconnect from the cross. If you disconnect from the cross, if you disconnect from the suffering of Christ, you will, in fact, have missed why Christ has died. He suffered for your sin. That's how ugly you are. That's how sinful you are. That's how sinful I am. That's how ugly I am. And Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, this means something. In other words, Christ has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished. Therefore, what does that mean as we live as a church, as believers? What does that mean for us as we represent the cause of Christ? What does that mean for us as we face persecution? We could think of a lot of things, but Peter brings it to something that is just so incredibly personal. It it, it almost seems too simple. Simple in the sense that we would think of some other formula than what we are getting ready to see. What is that formula? He simply says this, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, this is a season to pray. It was a season for them. It is a season for us. Pray for what? Well, pray for one another. Pray for the salvation of those who are lost. I shared with you last week, uh, again, about the phone call that I received. And uh, the man wanted to know, well, well, what do we do in these days? What do we do in these days when when our our faith is being ridiculed? What do we do in these days where uh, the things of God are being desecrated? What do we do in these days where people are rejecting the values of Scripture? What do we do during these days? Well, part of what we do is certainly we, we pray. We pray for those who are rejecting. We pray for those who are lost. We pray for those who are fighting hard against the values of Scripture. We pray hard for those who push hard against God. We pray. But how can we pray if we are not sober, sober-minded? In other words, thinking clearly understanding that we're living in the end of the days. 
when all the things that need, and I know there are pieces of prophecy that may yet need to be accomplished. I don't know what they are. I don't know that you know what they are. I don't know that we can determine from Scripture what they are. I know that whenever Peter was speaking here, he understood that all that needed to be accomplished for the redemption of man had been done. That's what he knew. Nothing else was left for them. And that they could expect the return of Christ and the return of God and the standing before God at any time. He knew that persecution was apparent. He didn't know how long it was going to be. He didn't know how hard it was going to be. Peter knew that these were the end days. As we are 2,000 years later, we know that. Now here's the philosophy of the world. And here's what it means to be sober-minded. The rest of the world believes that the world is going to go on just like it is now. I hope you realize that it is not going to go on like it is now. I hope you know that the Lord is going to return. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ, you ought to be looking for that. You ought to be living with an expectation of that. Uh, More than just an expectation, an anticipation of that, even in your lifetime. I know you've got goals. I know you've got things you want to accomplish I know there are things in life that you want to be about. I know that. But you have to find your grounding. We have to find our grounding with an understanding of the Lord's return. And we have to live our lives in such a way that we are able to persevere to that end, regardless of our circumstances. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, be self-controlled. In other words, get a grip of your life. Be self-controlled in your desires, your wants, and your ambitions. In other words, the, the Spirit of God living in the believer works in such a way that his or her desires are governed by the Spirit of God. The will of God, the ways of God. How do we find that? Well, we find it by looking at the Word of God. And we have shared that. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, think clearly about your life in respect to the end. Think clearly about your life in respect to the end. That's what it means to be sober-minded. A drunk man will find himself in in all kinds of peculiar circumstances, never dealing with the reality of things. He's always dealing with, or she's dealing with, something that they perceive that is not real. The rest of the world lives today as if there is no end and it's going to continue. And... If you look back over 2,000 years since Christ, what would you think? It's going to continue. But everything that he has said to us says it is not going to continue. Now, I'm not here today to fright you into thinking that today is the, the last day. It may be. That's not the point. The point is, is that Peter has a very, very important agenda. 
And that is, is to help this church realize, not falsely, but in all truthfulness, he's trying to help them put their lives in perspective and live based upon the end. And that is their being before God. Now, we could probably end there, and that would seem fine, but there's something else that he has to say, and it's not what we would expect. Notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, above all. In other words, uh, in everything that I am sharing with you, there is something that is paramount. There is something that is of the, of the greatest importance to you as a church. Above all. And what would we think? It, it wouldn't be what we hear. What does he say? And this points us back to the importance of this. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's not uncommon, and I'm sharing this, and I'm not taking anything away from this now. Jesus said it. We can't take anything away from it. But the same Spirit at work in Christ because of the triunity of God when he shared Matthew 18 and how to deal with struggles and hardships and sin, what we often point back to and how we deal with relationships. That same spirit, the spirit of Christ, was at work in Peter when he wrote these words. When he shared with this body of believers who were sovereignly scattered, sovereignly suffering, he says, above all, he said, love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Why did he say that to this church? Why did he say that to this group of people? Think about that for just a moment. They're suffering hardship and persecution. Life is hard. People are being used as human torches to, 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 to light up the path and the roadway to, to festivals. Christians were, were mounted up and tied to stakes and, and, and poured over with oil and set on fire just to be nothing more than a lantern on the side of a road for a festival for pagans and those who hated God. Why, with all of that going on and that with the prospect in front of them, why is he telling them, love one another earnestly? You ever thought about that? Why love one another earnestly? And then to say, because love covers a multitude of sin. Well, one, he says, love one another earnestly because when things are hard and persecution is at the very forefront, there are two things that are true. Is every person will be tempted to run to preserve self. Will focus on themselves and their own hardship. 
You know the people that I'm talking about, uh, even just in our common everyday way of life. Every one of us has this person uh, that we know of, is that no matter what we're dealing with, as soon as we start talking about our hardship, their hardship is worse than ours. Their sickness is worse than ours. If that's true when we are not in the midst of persecution, how much more true would that be when we are in a time where things are desperate? And their situation was desperate. And it was going to become even more desperate. No, he says, love one another earnestly. In other words, turn your attention away from yourself and give your attention to your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking specifically to the church here. Give your attention to them. Encourage them because love covers a multitude of sin. Now, Peter was present when Jesus taught of how to deal with hardship. In fact, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 18, you will find that Peter is the one who posed the question after Jesus did the teaching on how to deal with sin and, 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 and how to deal with offenses. Peter's the one who actually came up and said what? He said, well, well how often am I to forgive my brother?" He hasn't forgotten that conversation, mind you. You don't forget those kinds of conversations. Here, he simply says to the church, he says, love covers a multitude of sin. What does he mean? Well, he means just that. Is that when we love each other, we are not looking to find each other's faults. What we are striving to do is we are striving to encourage and help one another so that we make it through to the end. It is our responsibility as a church family. For those of you who are a part of OVC, you know that. It is our responsibility to make sure that we make it to the end, that we all make it to the end. That's not just something we say, that's biblical. We don't do it alone. And, and I would encourage you here today, if you don't have a church family, find one. If we can help you with that, and that place uh, may come to be uh, here at, at, at OVC, just know we, we will help you through to the end. Uh, and we'll also want you to help us through to the end as well. So there is a, a, an equal expectation in that. Why? Well, because persecution is coming, because hardship is coming. We're going to face sickness. We're going to face hardship. We're going to face struggles. And love covers a multitude of sin. We are not about trying to find each other's faults. We deal with sin lovingly as we should. But here we know that at the end, when, when the bottom line comes down, if the person that we are dealing with, if, if the first place that we want to go is to, uh, and, and we, we talk about this and, and we've joked about it, and it's not a joking thing, but we've joked about it. If the first place you want to go to is church discipline to deal with some kind of an issue, I'm not even sure you really love your brother or sister in Christ. The first place would be to say, let me help my brother and sister in the course of this because love 
covers a multitude of sin. Even at the point when forgiveness and reconciliation, forgiveness is there, it doesn't seem that reconciliation is taking place. Love covers a multitude of sin. I love and I keep going. They are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is that important during the time of persecution? During the time of persecution, we need each other. We need each other today. Hear me say this, I need you. We need each other. Notice what else he says. In the very, in the very context of this relationship that, again, it, it, for us, when we first glance at it, we're saying, why is all of this important in a time of persecution? Notice what else he says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now we could take this text and pull it out of its context and it would seem to make more sense. Wouldn't it? But in this context, it makes the most sense. We open up our homes and our lives when it is difficult and hard. That's what he's saying. During the time of persecution, we open up our lives and our home. It's, it's a big deal to have folks in your home. For those of you who have done that, you know that. It's a big deal. You have to put yourself out. It's not that you act different, but you have to make preparations for that. You have to be willing to give of yourself at a whole other level when you exercise the gift of hospitality, you have to really be give of yourself. You have to put yourself out. It's inconvenient. But there's a whole other piece here in the course of this, and I think Peter is pointing to this. In the gift of hospitality, it means that you take on others' struggles and hardships. For those of you who may not avail yourself as often maybe as you should or could, if you spend time with people, you find it sometimes it's hard to give of yourself all the time. And yet, the point that Peter is making is during these days, during this end time, here in these last days, that your greatest opportunity for making a difference in people's lives for the sake of the gospel is by giving of yourself. It's not by protecting your time. It's not by hanging out by yourself. What Peter is saying is that get through to the end to accomplish the things that are to be accomplished in these last days where our days are, are, are limited. Our season of opportunity to make a difference in people's lives for the sake of the gospel is limited. It's short. I was reminded of that this week. Reminded before and after my heart catheterization. My time is short. 
I have little time, literally. In the scope of the rest of my life, I have little time. The majority of my life is behind me. I have less ahead of me. How am I going to live my life? Am I going to live it for me, or am I going to live with a sense of a fullness in giving my life away? That is the heart of hospitality. And Peter says, show hospitality to one another. And he's talking here within the body of Christ here. And that is not, again, remind you, that is not, again, a uh, an, an us for and no more mentality. That is just simply we need each other in the body of Christ to give ourselves to one another. I hope you get this. We're not great in number yet. I, I don't know that we ever will be. That's not the point. But we will do no more for anyone else who comes into the body of this church than we do for each other now. We really won't. If we are giving of ourselves and loving and caring for each other now, then we will do that for others and we will do that as we grow as a fellowship and as a family and as the body of Christ. But we will do no more than we will do now. And Peter understood this, and he said, to the end of living through these days of persecution and hardship, we need each other to give ourselves to one another, to have meals together, to pray together, to encourage each other, to laugh together, to cry together, to open ourselves up and avail ourselves to others. Notice what else he says. He says, show hospitality to one another, and then he puts a qualifier on this. What is it? Without grumbling. Without grumbling. Why is that important? How many of you commit to do things, and then after you commit to do things, you grumble about having committed to do them, and now you're doing them because you said that you were going to do them, but all along the way, it becomes a hardship and a difficulty, and you grumble about it all the way to the end. Have you ever done that? If you're honest, you sure have. What does that say about it? Well, it it really does take a lot of the joy away from just simply serving and doing and caring and loving. Or you do it and then when it's all over with you, man, I'm glad that's done. I'm glad that's over. Now, Peter was trying to help us understand that we live through these days without grumbling. And you know what? This is what I found. The heart of humility, as we have said before in looking at our text, the heart of humility 
that drives the love and the care that comes through the body of Christ and ultimately spreads out into the community. will not be accompanied with grumbling. It won't. Then notice what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards as, as good stewards of God's very grace. A couple of things we need to make a note of here. One, this gift is not something that is uh, conspired or uh, something that is self-driven or self-given. They've received it. Who has given it? Well, we see clearly God has given it, and God has given it by His grace, and it is to be, as we see, stewarded to what end? To serve others. Okay? So every believer here, and we're not here to deal with all the spiritual gifts. That's not the point. We look and look at other texts. The point is, is Peter is pointing that in these days that we're living in right now, is that God has given us gifts that we need for the body of Christ to see our way to the end for his glory. And those gifts have been given for us to use to serve others, to serve each other, to serve in the body of Christ. He doesn't try to specify what those gifts are. He's not even telling us here that we identify what our gift is and we impose that upon the body. That's not what he's saying. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, for instance, you may have a spiritual gift, and I may have a gift that God has given that this body does not yet need. I don't impose that on this body. If in time this body needs the exercising of that gift to carry out whatever it is the body needs to do, that's when I step up and I use my gift. But until then, I use the gifts that God has given me that the body most needs. Why? Because that gift isn't about me. That gift has been given by God and His grace to be used to serve others. Now, here's, uh, here's, here's a point I want to make, okay? And, and, and this isn't directed to anybody in general. It's just directed to us or specific, but it's directed to us in general. If we're here today and you're not connected with a local body yet, you need to be if for no other reason. There are other reasons. But if for no other reason that if you are a believer that God has gifted you in the course of saving you and he has gifted you with a gift that is specific to a body of Christ, a body of local believers, and therein you are to use that gift. So if you're not connected with a local body, 
then you're not in a place to use the gift that God has given you, and therefore you are depriving the very body of Christ. Does that make sense? You're depriving the body of Christ. You're holding on to what God has given you that is intended for his body. And if you don't think the times are critical, all you have to go and do is go back and look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That means we're coming to the end. If there's ever a time that we need those gifts in the body of Christ, it is now. What might that be? Well, look in verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. In other words, I use my gifts, and if that gift is in speaking, I am speaking the word of God. That's what I am to be about. Speaking the word of God. I'm not trying to espouse my own, my own philosophy of life. No, God's word is guiding me in what I should say. God's Word is directing me in my conversations. God's Word is being, is being spoken through me in the course of me exercising whatever gift that may be. And most especially, if it is a gift of preaching or teaching, then we are preaching and teaching the Word of God. If we are counseling, as Rod does, and I'm pointing to him, Rod is a biblical counselor. He's a Christian. He's not a Christian counselor. He's a biblical counselor. If you ask him why he's a biblical counselor, I'm sure he would tell you something to this end, and that is because God's Word holds the answers for our life. I need not add to it. What needs to be done is that needs to be directed and learned to be applied. Is that close point? Speaking the oracles of God. Notice what else. Not only speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we serve in accordance with God's strength that he gives. To what end? And we'll close here. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Let that soak there just a minute. So that in all these things, ultimately, God is glorified through Christ living in us, living in believers pointing people to God and his wonder. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. If there's any doubt as to what we are about, what we should be about, what we should endeavor, there's any doubt, let that make clear and remove all doubt. Now, how do we apply this? 
I think there are a couple of things that, at least for me, as I have worked through the text, and I have looked at this text in relation to us as a church. That's my attention. I'm not, we're, not, we're not preaching to the world today, okay? We're preaching to Oak Valley. We're preaching to you and those of you who, by God's providence, have made your way here. It is important that we give consideration to our worldview and seeing our lives in respect to the end. Now, probably a handful of people in the world that wake up every morning and think of how does my life line up in, uh, in the, the big spectrum of God's redemptive plan. There are some people who think that way. Most of us are just trying to figure out how are we going to get through the day? Elijah, how are you going to get through tomorrow? Your first day at UNCW. Uh, how, how, how am I going to get through the next week? That's the way most of us think. And that's okay. It is helpful for us at least ever so often to stop and remember that we are living in God's world and we are living according to God's time and we are living in the context of God's work and we are living in the context of God's redemptive plan. In other words, our life means more in the scope of everything that's going on means more than just what we accomplish and just what we get done. We just should put pause there and say, yeah, it's bigger than me. I think if anything Peter has taught us the Holy Spirit through Peter's letter has taught us is that God's sovereignty is really a big deal. It really is. It's not just something we spat off that somehow or another is this big old thing out here and we use this word sovereignty and we have nothing, we have no handles to get a hold of. No, I think Peter has given us all kinds of handles to hold on to as it pertains to God's sovereignty. He really does have you and me where he wants us. In the time that he wants us to do the things that he wants us. And all through the course of this, we are having all kinds of challenges and hardships we're having relational hardships. We're having physical hardships. We may be struggling financially in some ways. We may be struggling emotionally in some ways. All kinds of things that are going on that are intersecting and weaving through all of this, all a part of God's ultimate plan for us in the course of his picture of what he's doing. But at the end of the day, for us as believers, 
the thing that guides us and directs us is the goodness of God and His grace toward us in Christ in giving us life and at the end of the day of us proclaiming Him to others. That's where all of this comes to bear. What does that mean for us? Well, we have to ask and answer the question, are are we busy about it? Is that what we're busy about? Or are we just busy about trying to get through the day? And if we're here and we haven't trusted Christ yet, therein comes a whole other piece of this. And that we have heard that Jesus bore our wrath that we may be forgiven of our sin and if we trust in him we then become sons and daughters of God and all of the wonder and glory of God then is directed toward us in our lives because we are his children then And as we have been reminded of Peter, we have an inheritance then that is undefiled and kept in heaven by God for us. Let's pray. Father, in the way that only you can do, bring these words of yours to bear upon us at the very core of our being as we hope in you and as we trust in you and we ask today Father that according to your will that you would speak to the hearts even in this moment those who have not yet trusted you and that you would call them to salvation And that they would come to look upon you and see the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the precious gift that you are as they embrace a life with you that will enhance and enrich and change them forever even when they suffer for you as Christ suffered. And it's in his name we pray.